All right, welcome back. We are still in our series uh, working through Genesis chapters 1 through 11, a series that we've called Foundations. And today we find ourselves in the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. And then next week we'll wrap up this summer series. Uh, have you liked this series, by the way? Yeah, I think we're going to keep going through Genesis uh, starting with chapter 12 next summer and then working through to just about the beginning of Joseph in somewhere around chapter 30 or so. And this might be a summer series uh, in three seasons. And, uh, and so today we are nearing the end of season one. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, a very famous incident. You probably uh, have heard this before, but this is the uh, known as the Tower of Babel. And so uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn uh, to Genesis. If, you, if you're new to church, uh, this is the uh, the part of our gathering weekly where we consider a, a specific passage of Scripture. And I teach through that a little bit and try to give some practical application as to what it means and how you can put it into practice in your life today. And, uh, and so we're glad that you're here. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. I don't always do this, but I'm going to ask you today if you would uh, stand as we read the Word of God together. Notice I didn't do it last week. It was 42 verses of genealogical words. And, uh, and so I don't always do this, but, uh, but from time to time, taking after Ezra the priest, uh, as the people stood and heard the Word preached and taught um, there in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we want to honor the Lord and His Word today. So let's uh, follow along as I read Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over there, over the face of the, all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that by your word, you spoke all things into existence. We thank you that your word is powerful. And so it's our prayer today that you would speak to us by your word. We know that wherever we are today, no matter what circumstances we're facing, no matter how we're doing emotionally or physically or health-wise or spiritually, that if we hear from you, all things can change and you can make all things new. And so we listen. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and help us to see what you would have us to learn in this text today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're summarizing uh, Genesis 1-11, through 11, uh, I, I kept trying last night to think of uh, some sort of an acronym, but none of them are worth presenting to you. But, but there are four major events that you just need to know whenever you think about this section of Scripture of Genesis 1-11. through 11. They are uh, creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. Those are four good anchor points or hinge points 
as you think about Genesis 1 through 11. And if you can be familiar with those four events, then it'll give you a framework for understanding this series that we have called Foundations. Uh, Just a couple of notes about the chapter, the verses that we just read. Uh, Chronologically, this happened somewhere um, in the middle of chapter 10. You remember we read the name, I'm sure you remember, out of the 70 names I read last week, one of them was named Peleg, and Peleg was named Division because uh, that's what his name meant, was Division, because the note said in Genesis 10 that at that time the Lord divided all the earth. And so chronologically, uh, this event of the Tower of Babel took place before the presentation of the Table of Nations in chapter 10. And we noted that last week because it said that they each were divided by their clans and their nations and their regions and their languages. So now we're going to get an understanding of of why they were dispersed and where they were. Uh, This is an event that took place before they were scattered. Uh, from the survivors of the um, ark of Noah and his ark. They are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And, and we looked at a map last week about how they all uh, spread around Europe and Africa and to the east and to the Middle East as well. It's important here to note and to remember that God had told Noah and his family uh, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to spread out and to have dominion over the face of the earth. The Tower of Babel is a place, however, where instead of spreading out over the earth and subduing it, instead, this is the place where the pride of humanity came into a sharp clash with the power and the will of God. It's a location where human planning and control and idolatry sought to overthrow and reject the Creator God and His will and His purpose. Have you ever done something that you look back on and you can see that it was motivated by some sense of selfish ambition or some sense of personal pride or in some way you made plans or you worked to accomplish something that seemed to clash with God's will for your life? Has anybody ever had that experience where you you feel like you may have wasted time in a career or maybe you've wasted time in a relationship that didn't um, end in some sort of commitment like you thought or maybe you, you wasted time in some sort of a hobby or an endeavor or in some way you've just done something that was generally, as you look back on it, motivated by selfishness or pride or ambition, but it wasn't God's will for your life. I think to some degree, all of us are guilty of this. I know that to be true before we became Christ followers, right? When we were operating according to the way of the world, we we all were intrinsically influenced by sin in our life, right? Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we we operate in a world that is run primarily uh, as it was called uh, uh, when Satan tempted Jesus he said authority has been given me over this world and I have authority to give to whoever I choose so we understand that this world system is overwhelmingly influenced by sin and we were a part of that system before we came to faith in Christ I think I can remember the very first time I recognized this desire in my heart that could only be labeled as ambition that was selfishly motivated. I think I was about nine years old, old enough to start watching the NFL and start to be interested in it. And um, I remember seeing Steve Largent uh, catch a pass in the end zone and the whole game stopped as they celebrated that he had broken this particular record. And as I watched this event take place, uh, I was fixed on the TV. And I asked my dad, I said, hey, he's got the same last name that we do. And he said, um, yeah, he's one of my cousins. It's very distant. We're not uh, close together at all. But, but hearing that and seeing that moment, I remember this particular phrase, this thought being formed in my own heart that just said, someday 
I want to be like that. Meaning someday I want people to look up to me and people to cheer for me and people to... I wanted what I thought he had. People looking up to me, people cheering for me. It was my desire to elevate myself in this purely selfish worldly way that I wanted wealth and fame and status. And obviously you can tell that all those things came true. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But I think that to some degree all of us carry that sinful seed of selfish ambition. A desire to control our life and a desire, like the text said, to make a name for ourselves. right? That we could build something. Maybe not a tower that goes to heaven, but they wanted to build something to get out of obedience to God and to make a name for themselves. The Tower of Babel is an actual geographical location. It's the event where human planning and control and idolatry, all of humanity's common sinful and selfish desires, came to clash with the power and will and rule of God. Now, it was a real place, but but for you, it might be a spiritual place where you might find yourself today. Maybe you're building a Tower of Babel. Maybe you're building something as a monument to yourself out of pure, selfish, sinful ambition. And you find yourself clashing with God who might have a different will for your life. You might have a different plan for your life, and yet instead of yielding to Him and submitting to Him or even seeking Him, you're running in pursuit, building something to make a name for yourself. I think there's a lot of application here. And so as we get back into the text, my prayer is that the Lord would speak to you through it today. Now let's go on to, uh, to, to understand something important as we understand the Tower of Babel. Uh, I have here the first slide, uh, and, and you'll remember that we talked about this in Genesis chapter 6, that, that in the uh, Tower of Babel literary narrative, these nine verses are structured in what might be familiar to you since we talked about it a few weeks ago as a chiastic structure. Uh, this chiastic structure uh, is is formatted in such a way as to highlight and pivot around this center point. Now, I don't know if you can see these words really well, but, but they're in your text and I've listed, listed the verses. Um, a corresponds with A1, B and B1, C and C1, D and D1, E and E1. And, and the object of that is that when you put them together like this, it, you can see that the, uh, the middle point is where the whole narrative pivots. And so let's just scan this, and you can see it really clearly in Hebrew. I tried to include the Hebrew words here. In A, the whole earth, the kol ha'aras, was one language. It's literally one lip and one word in the Hebrew. Everybody spoke one lip and one word. Listen, we can't even agree on how to say caramel or caramel. Uh, if you went up to a store in Oklahoma, where I'm from, uh, or a restaurant, a waiter would say to me, what do you want to drink? I might say, I want a, a Coke. And she would then say, what kind of Coke? I might say root beer. I might say Dr. Pepper. I might say Sprite. It makes no sense, right? If you were in Minnesota or somewhere in there, you might say soda. Right? Is anybody from that area that would call it a soda or a pop or something like that? Uh, others might call it a cola. Uh, I have no idea, and the nation has no idea, what Philadelphia is doing when it talks about hoagies. This is the only place in the world that calls it a hoagie. Everywhere else it's a sub or a hero or some other kind of sandwich. But, but here in this area, it's called a hoagie. I have no idea what a John is, so we won't even go into that. But, but you can just tell in our particular particular region, we don't have one lip and we don't have one language. But imagine a world when everybody came from the same cultural background and everybody, there were no, um, there were no differences in language. You, you didn't have uh, miscommunication. Amen? Wouldn't that be great, husbands and wives, if, if you always communicated, if, if he could just get in your head and, and know all the things that you're thinking about. Uh, I, I get sidetracked there. But the whole earth was together 
and they had one language. Um, that corresponds uh, with A1, where at the end, the same word is used, kol ha'eres, is this idea that the whole earth was then dispersed. In B1, people settled together there, and the word is psalm, and then they are dispersed from there in verse 8. Uh, in C, they said to each other, Re Ehu, uh, and then the Lord speaks, and he says, uh, he confuses their language so that they can't understand each other in verse 7. Same word, Re Ehu. Uh, in D, come now, they say, let us make bricks, and this let us make is Haba Nilbenya, and then when God speaks, he says, come now, let us Haba Nabela. You see how this is working? You can see it really clearly um, in Hebrew that this structure matters. They want to build, uh, they make bricks, they build a city, a city and a tower, and then the Lord comes down and he sees and observes and investigates uh, the city and the tower. And you might say that's neat, really, uh, kind of maybe, uh, but who cares? What could that possibly matter to us today? I think the chiastic structure... Uh, is meant to draw our attention to the center point. And the center point is that the Lord comes down. Now you might ask, did God need to come down to see what was happening? Was his vision limited? Did he really have to come down and, and look and see what was going on without knowing it? Well, we understand that one of God's attributes is his um, omniscience, and that he knows everything, he's all-knowing, that he sees the end from the beginning. But I want to mention this because it's significant in a couple of ways. If we focus on that center point that the Lord came down, uh, I want you to see on the next slide here, uh, this is what they think the uh, the Tower of Babel looked like. Um, this is known as a ziggurat, and a ziggurat is built with a large base and... Um, uh, uh, these sort of stair steps going up. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus uh, in 484 wrote that there was often a shrine that topped each ziggurat, even though none of these shrines have been intact. Now, you might know what a ziggurat is, but just in case you don't, it's a large brick pyramid-like structure that's found all over Mesopotamia. There are exactly 32 known ziggurats uh, in this region of Shinar or Mesopotamia or this cradle of civilization, really modern-day Iran and Iraq. Uh, ziggurats are not temples in a traditional sense. Priests didn't live in them. They didn't perform rituals there. Uh, instead, they viewed the ziggurat as a home or a resting place for God. By building a ziggurat near a major city, the rulers hoped to ensure that the gods would stay near them, offering aid and battle and keeping their crops growing. They weren't for public worship or ceremonies. Each ziggurat hosted a patron, little g, God. Only priests walked on the ziggurat or visited rooms on the base, uh, ostensibly to care for the gods and attending to their needs. Now, the Mesopotamians believed that these pyramid temples connected heaven and earth. And it's significant because they built this hoping that God might come down and be among them. And yet, they, they did not want the God to come among them. They, they weren't seeking after the Creator God. This was not a part of his desire for them. This was not a command that they would build these structures. His command was clear that they should um, spread out and that they would um, fill the earth and subdue it. And so they didn't want the God to come down. They wanted their own God to come down. So we know that they were already worshiping false gods, creating idols out of their own imagination. These were gods of their own choosing. Um, and the problem with gods that we create is that they really look a lot like us, don't they? <laughs> right? You're making up a god. That god never disagrees with you, does he? He seems to affirm everything that you do and 
he loves your lifestyle and he loves your belief system and he loves all he he's a very accommodating god right whenever we whenever we take the god of scripture and we just start tearing pages out and say i don't like this part about who god is and in my mind um god is like this and and really we're not taking a chisel and a hammer and creating a god but but for us the words to me is the same thing as a as an idolater's tool we are taking a chisel verbally and saying to me god is he's a god of love that just loves everybody and all roads lead to him and you can believe how you want to believe and as long as you're sincere and you don't hurt anybody right we hear that kind of stuff all the time we create these gods and this is what they were doing creating their own god who seemed to go in line with everything that they wanted to believe in spite of the fact that it was against what god had revealed so we read that God comes down. And this is one of the many times in Scripture where God Himself comes down to walk in human form. Uh, this is, these are called theophanies. Uh, theophany are these episodes in Scripture where God visits and comes. We saw it when Adam and Eve, back in Genesis chapter 3, when they fell in the garden and they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. Uh, what happened? They, they hid themselves. Why? Because they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Other theophanies include the presence of God in the burning bush episode in Exodus. Uh, We're going to get to these next summer, of course, when we get to Abraham. But Abraham had numerous appearances, uh, notably in Genesis 15.1, 17.1, and 18.1. God appears to Isaac uh, in Genesis 26.2 and Jacob in 28.13. There are many more of these instances where God appears in some form and he reveals himself to humans. But they all have their culmination in one event, right? Where, where is it most important in Scripture when God comes down? You're right, it's in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes down, all of these events, all these theophanies were foreshadowing Uh, events that would soon take place, that God might walk among sinners. And so he comes down and he walks among the people who are building the Tower of Babel. And this is the focal point, God coming down to walk among sinful humans. So he comes down, and uh, this is not the God that they wanted to come down, (laughs) but he does, he comes down. And so let's find out what was wrong with the people who built Babel. Look back at your text um, in Genesis 11, 1 through 4. What did the people do wrong? And what can we learn from them? Why did God oppose them? At the text it says the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated eastward, just pause there. It's an interesting side note, but eastward in Scripture often depicts moving away from God. Just think about it. After the fall, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and they went east of Eden. Genesis 3.24. When Cain was punished for killing um, Abel, in Genesis 4.16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled east of Eden in the land of Nod. We saw in chapter 10 last week that the, the clans that were not of the chosen line through Abraham, they, in chapter 10, moved eastward in verse 30. In 11.2, the verse we just read here, people migrated from the east. When Abraham and Lot separate, uh, in Genesis chapter 13, Lot looks up and he chooses for himself all the Jordan Valley, so Lot journeyed east and found himself in Sodom and Gomorrah. Kenneth Matthew makes this note, the language eastward marks events of separation in Genesis. And so by this spatial term, the narrative conveys in a metaphorical way the meaning that these Babylites have moved themselves outside of the presence of God and outside of His blessing. What else did they do wrong? Uh, You see in verse 1 and verse 3 and verse 4 that they had some sort of unity. They were together in this thing, right? Come, let us make, verse 3. Come, let us build, verse 4. Verse 1, they had one lip and one word. There was this language of unity. But why? What was the purpose of their unity? The purpose of their unity 
we can understand is that they wanted to be gods themselves. They had no desire to yield to God or to submit to God or to walk humbly with God as though their ancestors Noah and Enoch had done. They had these great godly examples. But they didn't want to serve God. And we see that in that they wanted to build a tower with its tops, uh, its top in the heavens. Their goal was to reach and have access to these realms that God had given them no authority accessing. God had told them, spread out horizontally on the face of the earth. They came together to build vertically in an attempt to attain a position and a status of God. And then we see the motive for that. They wanted to make a name for themselves. A prideful, selfish ambition. They said, let us make a name for ourselves, uh, otherwise we might get spread out and dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And I want you to hear this really clearly. I think John MacArthur puts it best uh, when he sort of encapsulates what I was trying to describe earlier, this sort of selfish ambition in our hearts. He says, from the beginning of human history, people have tried to elevate themselves above the constraints of earth and ultimately above the curse of death. It was Adam's desire to elevate himself to the level of God that brought the curse on mankind in the first place. We see the same behavior repeated at the Tower of Babel. So the people sought to elevate themselves above the constraints that God had placed on them in the earth. Waltke writes, Bruce Waltke writes, the Babylites and their hubris compare significantly with those who preceded them. That is, humanity's building of a tower with its lofty head in the clouds represents the final and climactic expression of human hubris. As Adam and Eve had transgressed these same limits of wisdom, you remember in the tree when Satan came to them in the form of a serpent, he said, if you eat of this, you will be what? You'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be just like God if you disobey Him and you take and eat of this fruit. Their desire to be like God by um, taking a shortcut around the person of God and His commands. We see that the sons of God in Genesis 6, these created somewhat hybrid angelic beings, they, they broke the laws and transgressed the boundaries of marriage. And we read in Jude and Peter, how they're kept in prison for transgressing these boundaries that God built. The tower builders seek meaning and fame by transgressing into the dwelling place of God. I think that this gets to the heart of what sin is. I mean, you might say I'm a good person. You might think of yourself as a good person. But, but if we're not yet in Christ and we don't have an accurate view of our sin, when we compare who we are to Scripture, what we see is that we're, we're not good people. We make our own boundaries. We expand them morally and ethically whenever we choose, don't we? This was the people of Babel making up their own religion and their own ideas and their own gods. Let's look at the third slide here. What does God do about it? The third point we find in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I mean, I guess it's not so magnificent, right? If if they wanted to make a name for themselves and build a tower to the heavens, um, God has to come down like to see it. It must be not as remarkable as they hoped. Rather than the tower reaching the heavens, God has to condescend and come down. Verse 6 God said, Behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And and I think that this is a remarkable statement. Don't you? That, That humans endowed with the image of God and the mind and the ingenuity that when we work together, we can really accomplish a lot, can't we? They're working against God, and so God acknowledges that One people with one language, nothing will be impossible for them. And so verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand each other's speech. I think this was one of our kids' favorite 
parts of the devotional book. Um, Every Story Whispers His Name by Sally Lloyd-Jones. How many of you parents have that devotional book um, where... Yeah, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Thank you. Um, when it gets to the Tower of Babel, they, they say these outrageous little phrases. I can't remember what they are, but, but we always go back, and if we had asked them, which one do you want to read, that was one they repeatedly went back to. And I want you to see here that this act of confusing their language so that they wouldn't understand each other's speech was really an act of mercy. It was an act of the restraining grace of God. The restraining grace of God. Why do I say that? Well, God had just witnessed the earth populated with millions of people and they had become so violent and so increasingly wicked that he says every thought of their heart was only evil continually. Remember that from Genesis 6? It was such a violent, wicked, perverse culture that God had to annihilate the entire world with a flood. And it wasn't too far removed from these people as well. It, these were stories that they would have passed on. Every culture has some sort of a flood story. Did you know the, the Chinese symbol for flood is eight and a boat put together? Every culture has some sort of memory of a flood story. They could have remembered that But it is an act of God to restrain the wickedness that would have broken out had they remained united and together. Because when men and women unite together in rebellion against God, there's not just a potential for wickedness, but there's an actuality of real evil. And I don't have to convince you of that. You just watch the local news from Philadelphia. Six million people in the metro area. You see every single day evidence of great evil. Murder, crime, violence, um, every kind of wickedness. So the confusion of language is an act of mercy on God's part. It's an act of restraining grace. What's restraining grace? Restraining grace is the reality that God holds us back and prevents us from being as evil as we can. As evil as we are. And I'm not just talking about unbelievers. That's true for unbelievers. It's also true for believers. There may be times, Christ follower, you've had a sincere relationship with God, you've had times where you pursue Him, but there may be times in your life where you you backslide or your your heart gets sort of cold toward the Lord and and, and you might even set your heart on pleasing your sinful flesh in different ways. The reality of restraining grace is that God doesn't give you the full leash to the freedom. And there comes a time, according to Romans uh, 1, that part of the judgment of God is that He loosens restraining grace and He gives them over and He gives them over and He gives them over. The more you persist in rebelling against God and wickedness and sin, eventually He'll just give it over to you. If you're not careful to repent of your sins, God will give you over to the sins that you're pursuing as a form of judgment. But this act of bringing confusion of their language was actually a mercy. It kept them from becoming the society that God had just destroyed in the flood. Look at verse 8. So then the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and there they left off building the city. So as a result of God's gracious intervention, the potential for even greater evil and wickedness was restrained. God scattered them. And he caused confusion among them. They became not united in building upward, but scattered and confused. And therefore, verse 9, its name was called Babel. We still use that word today, don't we? If somebody's a babbler or if somebody's babbling on, they're just sort of a word for gibberish and speaking in a way that doesn't make a point. Don't say that I'm babbling, right? When I'm preaching, I hope you don't label it that way, but um, but the name Babel has come to be associated with meaningless language. Uh, there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them. Let me close with the um, with these two, I think I have two application points. Yeah, just two. 
Just two points, that, and what can we do with this today? What does this mean for you? How can you apply this? What can you do? How could this have any meaning for you? Um, number one, application point, whenever sinful men and women unite and construct something, God often deconstructs and thwarts their godly plans. I mean, this has plenty of hope for us, right? Because we see nations rising against nations and they have evil plans. You see it um, uh, in the 1940s when um, maybe a Hitler rose up to take over the world or a Japan or, or when Israel became a nation and they were immediately thrust into warfare. When nations rise up against other nations, when ungodly people unite in sin to destroy, God often thwarts their plans because we don't serve a God who is disengaged from the affairs of mankind. We have a God who is actively working and bringing redemption in a lost and broken world. You see this countless times in Scripture where God deconstructs and thwarts ungodly plans. Pharaoh against Moses. Noah against the inhabitants of the world who built ungodly civilizations. Um... Proverbs says that as a man plans his course, it is God who determines his steps. I think the reality of our human sin nature is that we, in sin, want to elevate ourselves without God. We seek knowledge and wisdom outside of godliness. If you think back on your life before you came to faith in Christ, were you not seeking to elevate and improve your life? without seeking God? Did you not seek to have what you perceived as real life apart from God? I was in sixth grade when some guys tried to witness to me, share the gospel with me, actually at a birthday party. And I said, you're, you're crazy for believing in a God. I don't know why anybody would believe in a God. Psalm 53.1 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God and his ways are wicked and viable. I live the next six or so years of my life. Enforcing that sort of apatheism or atheism or agnosticism, whatever it was, I wanted nothing to do with God. And I thought anything and everything that I could get my hands on that would bring me peace or satisfaction or adventure or real life, I pursued it all until the Lord halted me just before my senior year of high school and helped me see and deconstructing what I thought would bring me life, and humbling me to a point where I put my faith in Christ. God intentionally confused all my plans. And I thank God for that, don't you? Don't you thank God when you have a sinful, wicked plan, and He somehow rearranges your heart, or rearranges the circumstances? You say, well, I don't think God is a God of confusion. I think Scripture tells us that God is not a God of confusion. But but here, God intentionally confused when there was previously clarity and unity. In the case of sinners operating with great clarity and rebellion and disobedience, God often brings confusion and scattering. But here's the beautiful irony that I want you to see about the Tower of Babel. What God scattered and confused at Babel he reversed somewhere else in Scripture. What did he do? Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 that at the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the apostles were all in an upper room and the Holy Spirit falls on them. And, And what do they do? They each begin speaking in different languages. And as this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, these tongues of fire descend upon them and they go out into the streets at 9 o'clock in the morning, they're proclaiming the Word of God in foreign languages that they had never studied, so much so that thousands of people gather and they they ask them, "What, what is happening here? These men are proclaiming the Word of God and And we're hearing it each in our what? In our own native languages. Languages that they hadn't studied. They they could see that these were just normal people from Galilee, and yet they marveled. How is it that we're hearing the wonders of God in our own language? 
What happened at the Tower of Babel, the scattering and confusion was reversed for the people of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a wonderful application in that this is why you and I enjoy, or we ought to enjoy, gospel unity and clarity in our mission to preach the gospel and to go out and make disciples who can make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything that the Lord has taught us. See, if you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, we have a united spirit by that Holy Spirit that brings us together. And it's true worldwide. I've served in missions on four different continents over the last 30 or so years. And and every time I've gone on a mission trip somewhere around the world, whether it's in Africa or the Middle East or in Europe or in South America or Central America or in Canada, no matter where I've gone, what I've found is that when I connect with other believers in Christ, we have more in common, more unity, more purpose, more prayer, more uh, uh, of what, what unites us in Christ and what divides us in any other way. It's a beautiful thing from around the world to see believers from different nations and different languages uniting together for gospel purposes. So what God did at Babel by scattering everybody for the church of God, and the difference is this, who builds the church? Jesus does, right? He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome. This wasn't our idea. The church is God's plan A, right? It's not plan B or plan C or plan D to reach the world. This was his plan and it had nothing to do with me or you. We don't build this church. The church will go on long after you and I are uh, dead and buried or, or if we leave the faith or if we leave the church. or No matter what, God's purpose will stand because he is building his church and he does it by uniting believers together that's the first application point is to understand what sinful men unite and construct god deconstructs but in the church god is building it by the power of his holy spirit and then the second thing that i want you to put into practice is really a a moment for examination and it could be in a form of a prayer but it's it's this God, how have I sought to exalt myself? How have I sought, in what ways have I been selfish in my ambition? Can you purify my heart and my motives? How have I tried to make a name for myself? Have I sought to exert control over my life apart from you and apart from your will and apart from your ways? Am I seeking to build something that does not glorify you? You know Psalm 127.1, I'm sure. Unless the Lord builds the house, what happens? The builders build in vain, right? God wants us to build in His purpose, in His plan, in His timing, in submission and yieldedness to Him. But all too often, we have to ask ourselves, have I in any way sought to elevate myself without properly submitting to God and His will? It's this desire. Let's make a name for ourselves. This is what we call selfish ambition. Are you motivated by fame and by wealth and by comfort and by security and by, uh, in some way, making yourself great? Do you desire to make your name great? Jeremiah said it this way in 45.5, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Philippians 2 tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. James 3, 14 through 16, listen closely, says, If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast about it and be false to the truth. He even describes jealousy and selfish ambition as earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Selfish ambition. Jealousy is demonic. Earthly and unspiritual. And then he goes on to say in James 3.16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. See how the scripture cuts us to the heart if we are driven and motivated by selfish ambition? These passages tell us not to seek great things for self, to do nothing out of this motive of selfish ambition. Um, 
that it's demonic, that there will be disorder in every evil practice. I once met a guy in ministry, and he said, uh, yeah, I prayed that God would um, raise me up so that I could disciple the 20 most influential men in the world. And I just walked away thinking, how arrogant. It'd be one thing if I could spot it in someone else, but but I, I could see this in me. You can remember in the early 2000s, probably, if you're old enough, um, that there were this kind of major conference movement where large gatherings, it probably started earlier, but there were lots of these major conferences where they would put together a lot of great speakers and, and in, you know, Promise Keepers from the 90s and other of these large kind of gatherings, uh, I found after maybe five or six years of going to these large, large gatherings that that I, I had a hard time hearing the message because something inside of me, it was like God was putting his finger on it, but it was revealed, it was bubbling up to the surface and that I wanted to be that guy. I always wanted to be the one on the stage and and it got to a point where in 2007 or 2008, I had to stop going to these conferences altogether because I didn't like what was being exposed about me. Even 10 years ago, I had been praying and fasting fervently that God would bring revival and awakening. On the surface, a really good prayer. But I was challenged by my own selfish ambition and it was revealed in me when God said, just indicated to me that you don't pray this for anybody else. <laughs> Anytime you pray for this, it's you want to be the one. You want to be the one that I do this work through. You don't pray that for because of the lostness in the area, and you don't do this because you care about God spilling over and His presence coming among people in His churches. My motives were not pure. I wasn't praying this for every other church in the area. I had this dark desire with building my own ministry for my own name. And I cloaked it with Christian language, like all glory to God. And you know, as long as the kingdom grows, I just want God to be glorified. But, but deep inside, I knew that I wanted more. And the troubling thing was that for years, I believed these lies. I really thought that I only wanted Christian ministry success to God be the glory, right? It was really driven... Um, it was really driven by selfish ambition. And the Lord humbled me and he rebuked me and it has changed the trajectory of ministry for me. Uh, it was a really a burden that I stopped carrying. And I can gladly listen to conference speakers and things like that. And I don't have any I, I, uh, ambition to do any of what I used to carry. If you struggle with this, you have selfish ambition, you have jealousy, you get angry if somebody else experiences success, right? Oh, that guy? How, God's using that person? Not me. I can, I'm much more available or smarter. Even now, you can think, I can talk better than he can up there. And, you know, there can be a bit of bitterness and jealousy. Maybe the Lord is revealing this to you. Let me give you, in closing, how can you, what's the antidote to selfish ambition. Here it is. It's a right understanding of yourself before God and before people that results in selfless service and humility. I'll say it again. The antidote to selfish ambition is a right understanding of yourself before God and people that results in selfless service and humility. I talked about Isaiah 6 earlier. Isaiah the prophet saw God in the temple and he was high and lifted up and, and he immediately was humbled and broken and said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Seeing yourself rightly leads to acts of humility and service. Whenever you see yourself in light of who God is, your right understanding of yourself is humility. When you see yourself rightly, you will do things like this. Without any desire for recognition, you will pick the lowest task and you'll do it in secret. You will stop talking about yourself so much. You won't be so quick to point out um, uh, all the things that you do great. I told this to a guy once. Uh, the proverb says, um, 
Let another man praise you and not your own lips. And he said, well, who's going to know all the things I do? <laughs> How will they know if I don't tell them, right? He was super innocent. He wasn't trying to be funny. You just don't talk about yourself. Don't elevate yourself. Don't make sure that everybody knows all the things you've done. Pick the lowest task and do it in secret. Humble yourself. The Lord values humility as opposed to selfish ambition. I have 38 verses here, I could tell you. Um, but I won't go into all of them. But obviously, Numbers 12.3, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Moses was the most humble man more than any man on the face of the whole earth. The most humble man got elevated to arguably one of the top godliest three people in all of Scripture aside from Jesus. Micah 6.8, you know this verse, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Matthew 23.12, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Of course, we have the example of Jesus in Philippians 2.5-11. through 11. James 4.6 is that the one... Uh, who opposes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. First Peter 5 says um, that we should clothe ourselves, all of you, with humility toward each other, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. You see how much the Lord valued humility, values humility more than pride? and arrogance, and ambition, and selfishness. I think the sin of pride, biblically, arguably, is the most egregious sin of all. Why? Because pride keeps you from ever saying, I was wrong, forgive me. Pride keeps you from serving in lowly places. That's too small of a task for me. I'm more important. I need a more elevated position. Pride causes you to desire great things for yourself, but not for others. Pride brings up within you a jealousy that's really ugly. If you've ever experienced any sort of jealousy, it's not pleasant. Pride keeps you from repenting of sin. It keeps you from confessing your sin to others. It leads you to building a reputation built on uh, falsehood. Pride will lead you straight to hell, counting on your own goodness and your own good works to save you. Because pride tells you that you're good enough on your own and you don't need Jesus, right? Pride is the sin of the builders of the Tower of Babel. It was their pride that said, let us build a tower to heaven and make a name for ourselves. But the good news is that God came down, didn't he? (laughs) He came down and he demonstrated grace. And the same offer that God gave the people of the Tower of Babel, the same offer that He holds out to you today, that if you are struggling with pride and ambition and selfishness apart from God, He offers you life and forgiveness and grace, a new start. If you'll humble yourself and admit your need for Jesus, repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus, what does that look like? looks like yielding your life. Yielding your life and allowing Jesus to be the Lord and Savior. So Father, we thank you for the example that we have here in the scene of the Tower of Babel. We thank you that we can just clearly see that pride destroys. So we pray that if this is an issue that we struggle with, if this is something that you have put your finger on, we pray that today you might grant us repentance into life and faith. Help us to see where we've been seeking to exalt ourselves. Have you sought great things for yourself? Seek them not, your word tells us. And ultimately, we thank you for Jesus and for the life that he offers. We pray that we might rest in him today. In Jesus' name, amen.